0: If you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Second Peter and let's get into this good and as Zachary said, gracious word. Um, as he mentioned, even sort of referencing Ecclesiastes, I pray that we, you know, are, uh, that when we draw near the house of the Lord, we go quick to, we draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Uh, and remember when it, when it's saying, listen, sometimes we kind of make that sort of this ethereal, I go to the church and I wait for the Lord to speak to me. What it's saying is the priest is going to read the word of God to you. You pay attention. Uh, which is why it then says in verse two, don't be rash with your mouth and make a quick vow and go, yeah, I know any, I'm going to do that and I'm going to do it. So listen to the word of God, be obedient to it. Uh, and, and, uh, what a great grace it is to, to have that. So Second Peter, we've been moving through uh, the book, the first part of Second Peter, laying out for us the great promises of the gospel and then what God has done for us, how he's gifted us with our great salvation and then God's sort of provision for his people in the word and now God's protection over the problem of these false teachers, and that's really what's going on in, in chapter 2 where we've been, you've got these people who are willfully rejecting the master because, Peter says, they really love sensuality. Uh, they, uh, as we saw last week, they, dis- they despise authority. And so they remold God's word. That, that word, that, that plastic Word. Uh, they remold it to fit what, what they want, their interpretation, remember, the, this, their ideas instead of what, what God says. Uh, and they're trying to convince the church to listen to them. They're trying to convince the church to listen to them instead of what the church does know and should know, which is that the interpretation of Scripture itself also comes from the Lord. And so they've got this problem. The church is dealing with these false teachers. What are they going to do? And Peter makes these promises. These promises about these false teachers that are going to come uh, with their, as he says, their, their destructive divisions, their destructive heresies that are threatening to, to blow up the church, that, that actually what's going to come is destruction, but to these false teachers. So these false teachers that are bringing in destructive, destroying things, destructive divisions, destructive heresies are in the end going to be the ones that are destroyed. These false teachers and their false teaching are not going to win in Christ's church. And so the destruction of these false teachers, uh, although they're saying it's not going to come, Peter has started telling us last week it has already started. And we get these promises of God for the destruction of these false teachers and for the destruction of their teaching. And remember the three examples that he gave us last week when we started looking down in verse 3 through the beginning of verse 10. He gives us three examples. He gives us the example of angels. He gave us the examples of the pre-flood world. And then he gave us the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said all three of those times show us that in the midst of wickedness, God is not idle. God is not asleep. He has proven himself And then in verse 9 and 10, he told us what he wanted us to learn from those examples, which was two things that God rescues the godly from their trials, their temptations, their testing, the things they go through, and that God punishes the unrighteous. So let's read now again chapter 2, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 10. uh, And then we'll look at these promises found in 9 and 10 again. So we're going to finish this idea of what's going to be the outcome of these false teachers Uh, And then next week, we'll see how dumb these false teachers are. Uh, So let's stand in the honor of reading the word of God. And let us draw near to listen to him. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, we want to be thankful for your for your promises, including your promise, as we're going to see in your word. And as we saw last week, you know, to protect your people, to rescue them, and to hold the wicked for judgment. Uh, Father, may we treasure your word as we treasure you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we saw last week God's promise to rescue the godly. And so we looked at and we saw Righteous Lot. We saw Noah. Uh, but now we look at the second promise. So, so what promises does God make in a world of falsehood? This whole world is filled with false teachers, right? This whole world is filled with falsehood. These false teachers are not an anomaly. They're just continuing a part of the problem. They're still just a part of the world that has sort of parasited itself into the church, but but they're no different than the rest of the world. He says, God rescues the godly. That was the first promise We saw last week. Now we see the second promise, which is that God punishes the wicked. So the promise, I will rescue you and I will punish them. That's that's his promise to God's people. Let's see how how God puts it. Uh, Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So we looked at last week. And now this week, the second one. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. It's that second one that we're going to look at today, that that God makes a promise to punish the wicked. And, and, And that's a promise that we as Christians really need to remember, that we need to understand in order to fill out our view of God. For a full view, a full understanding of who God is, we must understand that God's punishment of the wicked is a good thing, that God uses. Here God is promising his people who are going through trouble and what does he promise them? Look, I'm going to take care of you and normally that's where we end the promises from God. When we're going through difficulty, normally we say, look, God's going to take care of you. Don't be afraid. Don't fear them. But God doesn't just promise that he's going to take care of them, does he? He says, I promise I'm going to take care of you. I know how to take care of you, and I know how to punish the wicked. We as Christians are very uncomfortable with judgment. We are uncomfortable with that aspect of judgment. God, when he comes and says, don't worry, I'll punish the wicked. It's it's as if we think we need to remind God, hey, hey, buddy, let me know this. But you don't really do that anymore. That was sort of the old you. Remember, uh, I don't know if if Peter's grabbing from the wrong part of the Bible. Uh, That's sort of the weird idea that we have. But here, Peter is clear that God promises, look. I know how to rescue you, and I know how to keep the unrighteous for judgment. I know how to do that. Don't fear that I won't. That that is a promise from God. No, no, no. He didn't just say I will punish the wicked. He says I know how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. So you don't need to fear that I'm not going to punish the wicked. You don't need to fear that I'm going to let them go. That you know you can think of a like a as God, as God of some sort of Barney Fife sort of jailer you know, that, that puts the key, you know, right near the door and, and they're going to sneak out and there's going to be no repercussions for the wicked. God multiple times promises us in scripture, look, the wicked aren't going to get away with it and it says it as a promise to God's people, it says it so. for example, you give you just a few, I had to keep trimming down, uh, Proverbs eleven twenty one. be assured an evil person will not go unpunished but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. So look, an evil person, don't, don't worry. An evil person is going to be punished. They're not going to go unpunished. Proverbs eleven thirty one. if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? It's, it's an inevitability is going to happen. Proverbs 24, 19 and 20, fret not yourself because of evildoers and don't be envious of the wicked for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Or, this is a big theme in in Psalm 37, Psalm 37, verse 1 through 3. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And then he continues this on and picks back up this idea in verse 7. He says, be still before the Lord. And this is a very Petrine idea. That's why we pick this one back up. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. So you see the evil, evil, th- the evil people are doing evil things and they seem to be not being punished for it. And, and things don't seem to be going bad for them and you're fretting. And he says, wait patiently for the Lord. Very similar to what we see in Peter He says, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Don't try and take the vengeance on yourself. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So if we handle this wrong, we end up being the ones who actually end up doing the evil in our lack of patience for the Lord. And he says, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land there we see the promise look judgment is going to come and those who inherit the land are those who wait for the lord to bring that punishment who trust in the lord that he he does know how to keep the wicked for judgment but the the truth is when you're reading that a lot of us because we have hopefully no one in here uh we've got uh, if we if we do we'll go back to that eight month sermon series we did on christ in the old testament uh and understanding the old testament light of christ uh but for some people they've got no problem with those verses talking about god's judgment why what do people say well that was the old testament right that's when god did things like that but in the new testament god's not judgy anymore right he's not a judgy god now he's fine with everything there's no sorts of idea well one if you, even, even if you have that wrong view, what have we just seen in 2 Peter alone? Second Peter, God just promises us that judgment is going to come. So that in itself just blows that whole thing up. But let me give you something from the mouth of Jesus himself. Because in our bad understanding of scripture, sometimes we, we do Jesus is the good cop to like the Old Testament's bad cop. Right? Like God's come in, he's done the bad cop routine, and then here comes Jesus to do the good cop routine and, and, and change it all up. But listen, Jesus himself mentions the promise of judgment. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So we, listen, we read this verse and we go, okay, this is about always praying to the Lord. But listen to what we're praying for. And what we're hoping in, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge. This judge neither feared God nor respected man. In other words, not a good judge or judges like we have now. Uh, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though, I neither fear God nor respect man. I mean, that guy's dumb. Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her what? Justice. So that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? So the woman is calling for justice and not some sort of, you know, sort of woke social justice idea. She's calling for justice against her adversary who has done wrong. Her adversary who is wicked. Has done a wicked thing against her, and she's going to this judge and seeking for wickedness to be punished. And God says, Look, even the unrighteous judge who doesn't fear me and who doesn't care about people will do the just thing because this woman keeps asking. So he says, How much more will I? Not do that same thing for my elect, my elect who are crying out for justice day and night. Well, what justice are they crying out for? There are wrongs in this earth, God, and there are wrongdoers. Bring justice to this world. He says they are crying. In fact, Jesus says that that crying out for God, that trust in God's judgment is a sign of faith. He says, will I see that type of faith when I return? In other words, that's the type of faith I want to see. Well, he says, look, I, the, so God as a righteous judge is going to judge the, the wicked. And in fact, he says, those who have faith in him will be the ones crying out night and day for him to do that very thing. That one of our signs of faith is being a people who cry out and who wait patiently for the Lord to enact justice. But why is it faith? How is it a sign of faith to cry out for justice? Because just like in Peter's letter, judgment isn't always instantaneous and it's not always obvious. So that Peter can say, look, you're asking for judgment and you're wanting judgment. And look, it's the Lord's not idle and he's not asleep. It's already happening. And in fact, it will keep happening Until the day of of judgment, and that's not new. You could go all the way back to the first time sin was a problem, the fall. Think about the fall. What happened? If you eat of this tree, you will die. And they ate, and then boom, God says, what did you do? What is this that you have done? But even there, the death God promised, did it happen right away? Yes and no. Right? They died spiritually, and yet the, the promise of judgment, you are of dust and to dust you shall return, was going, still took time. That judgment was still being enacted. The judgment came instantly, but the consequences of that judgment were held. You see the same thing, the angels, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those are examples of people who were living severely wicked lives, but none of them were judged instantly. They were able to pursue their sin, to fill up a city in Sodom and Gomorrah's case, to fill up the heavens in the case of the angels, to fill up the whole world where every thought of man's heart was always evil continually in the case of the pre-flood world. That had happened and was happening, and yet judgment didn't happen right away. They were able to pursue their sin, and, and probably to them seemed like nothing was going to happen from it. Sodom and Gomorrah was booming. Their GDP was off the charts. That was at least true for a time. Because these Christian believers in the same way shouldn't be discouraged because nothing is happening to these false teachers right now. So these false teachers seem successful. It says many are following after them and they're being led by sensuality and they despise authority. It would be easy as the church to become discouraged. And so Peter gives them all of these examples showing that God has always promised to handle judgment, that he always will, and he has proven himself. That God promises he is at work and that it includes at work in judging those who are living lives of wickedness. That both their judgment and their destruction is not idle. And God's judgment is especially at work in this particular situation, he says. That's what he says at the start of verse 10. So look, this destruction's going to come. He knows how to keep these people under judgment until the time uh, or under punishment until the day of judgment. And this is especially true in what the false teachers are doing. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Verse 10, and especially, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They, well, we won't get to that. That's next week. But leaders, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God's ability to keep people for judgment is especially true. Now, we can talk about how one thing that's 100% true, another thing can be more especially true of something that is 100% true. But this is especially true when the sins that these people are doing are sins of indulging in this passion and are despising authority. And here is why we see this is the reason God chose the example, all the examples he could have chosen in the Old Testament of God enacting judgment. This is one of the reasons that he chose the examples that he did. Those three examples, because those things, the, uh, lustful passions, despising authority, those things were true in those three examples. We saw last week. How both of those were true in Sodom and Gomorrah that listed explicitly as the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are their pride in Ezekiel and their passions in the book of Jude. Uh, Those are both mentioned as to why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. But those are also the sins, those specific sins, despising authority and sensuality are also the sins of the pre-flood world and of the angels. So they're guilty of, of these very things. So, for example, in for defiling passions, you look no further than Genesis 6. Genesis 6 describes a world as a time of, of uninhibited passions. So it says, uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took and they took as their wives any they chose the lord said my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh his day shall be 120 years the nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of uh, god came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them these are the mighty men of old men of renown now we can talk about well which side of the equation do you put that on are you putting that on the angel side you're putting that on mankind pre-flood world side. It doesn't really matter which side of the equation you put it on. The point is, it was a time of defiling passions. It was a time where people looked and said, I want that and took that in an ungodly way. Uh, and the result of that is going to be the rest of Genesis 6, where these thoughts of men are just spiraling in to wickedness. but not only defiling passions, uh, despising authority. This is, again, one of the things that angels are said to have done. Jude, verse 6, The angels are said to have defied authority. That's why they're held in chains. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains Under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Remember, you're going, that sounds a lot like Peter. If you'll remember, we said read Jude and read this section in Peter, they go hand in hand. But there you can see these angels despising authority. So these false teachers, driven by sensuality, driven by pride, are acting exactly like the angels, acting exactly like the pre flood world, acting exactly like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. They are doing the exact same thing, despising authority, living in sensuality, and God says, He especially knows how to keep for judgment, people like that. So God promises them, look, I will rescue you and I will not let them get away. I do not let people get away, especially who live in their lustful passions and who despise authority. So church, take heart. And in a world of lies, God comes and makes that promise to his people, I will save you and I will get them. Now, I think this would be a, a good time to talk about how Christians need to understand God's judgment. Because this idea of God being praiseworthy for judgment, of, of, of judgment being uh, something that God is promising his people it really throws us off we see God promise to judge the wicked here and we almost try to do theological math to get him out of actually judging anybody we're like well he can't really mean judgment so maybe what he means is this and what can we learn based on God's promise of judgment and and what should we understand of judgment in scripture one is that judgment for Christians we need to understand judgment is a good thing just at its basic level, the judgment of God is good. That it is, it is not a problem as we sometimes think of it. You go, oh, what are we going to do with those passages in the Bible where God judges people? As if that's something we've got to undo, as if it's something bad on God's part, that he judges these nations and wipes them out, that he enacts judgment on people and, and, and leads to their destruction. Look, judgment is praiseworthy. Judgment is actually a hope for believers. It is something you should be hoping. It is something that, as Jesus said, you should be having faith in. You wait patiently for the Lord to bring judgment. We have an incomplete and therefore inaccurate view of God if we do not view God's promise of judgment as a necessary part of his being. Because what we'd be saying is if God is not just, if he is not going to judge the wicked, then he is worse than the unrighteous judge. Because even the unrighteous judge brings justice. He doesn't, God assures the people, look at what, what, what does God do? God assures the people here. He says, look, I will be faithful. And how will I be faithful? I will rescue you. But he doesn't stop there. And he could have. He could have stopped there. And it would have been a great passage, right? If God were to say, look, I know how to rescue you out of a world that's about to be flooded. I know how to pull you out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Take heart. Think of Noah. Think of Lot. And everything's going to be okay. He could have stopped there. But he didn't. He said, I know how to rescue you. And I know how to keep them for judgment. That's a promise. That he makes to his people. I mean, he doesn't even, I mean, he could have he, he said, he could have said to Peter's churches, he could have said, I will rescue you. And hey, by the way, you're wrong for wanting them to be judged. I will rescue you. And by the way, let's talk about your heart, Peter churches. I get a sense that you're a little judgy. And that you're wanting these unrighteous people to be judged. Let's talk about that for a second. He doesn't. He says, "Trust me. I know how to rescue you, like you're calling out for, and I know how to bring justice, like they were also calling out for." He doesn't say, "I'll rescue my people," but quit, quit wanting judgment of the wicked. Why are you even thinking those thoughts? You, that's not what I do anymore. He says the wrong would be if he didn't judge them, which is exactly like Jesus himself said. You can perhaps most clearly see our uncomfortableness with judgment in our sort of weird handling of hell. We really don't know what to do with hell. God as judge has been so lost that we have perverted the bible's depiction of where that justice takes place we have perverted what hell is the place where god's judgment is poured out on the wicked hell has become in our eyes a bad place hell is a bad place it's a place of the absence of god it's a place i i used to i used to be a part of of plays that we would do uh, around halloween where there'd be a hell scene and you know who was in charge of hell the devil and he was in there and he was ruling hell he was really scary but he was also very wrong because none of those things is true hell is not a bad place it is the place where bad is judged It is a, it is, hell is a promise of God to his people, not a problem for God's people. And hell is not the absence of God. Hell is where God in all his holiness is poured out on the people. That's why in the book of Revelation, it says that in hell, Jesus is there watching the destruction of the wicked. But this time it's justice without mercy. It's justice without grace. It is giving them what they have earned. And hell is definitely not where the devil is in charge. Hell is where God is in charge. Where the devil is punished and is punished along with all others who have despised God in their lives. But to understand judgment, we have to understand these things. We need to be able to understand this about God's justice. To understand why God's judgment is a good thing. If God had chosen at the fall of Adam to justly send every person in all creation to hell, that would have been a glorious thing. He would have been praised by the angels for all eternity for being a just judge. If every single person since Adam went to hell, God's praise would not have faltered one iota because he would have been just he would have done what is right. These people are wicked and they're living in their wickedness. They've lived in their wickedness all of their lives and you have let them reap what they have sown and the angels would have sung his glory through eternity as hell was filled with everybody. Everybody. If if we can understand that, then we can start to understand why hell is not a, a problem and why heaven is so amazing. Because if he had given everybody hell, he would, have, he would have been praised forever. The, the glorious hosts of heaven would have talked about there is no God like you who doesn't let wickedness ever go unpunished. You are just. You are just. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The tune wouldn't have even had to change. So we've got to understand that verse. We've got to understand. And this is why we get the equation so wrong when we're like, why doesn't God save everybody? The equation that's really should be where we start is how in the world, why in the world would God save anyone? He doesn't need to. Because judgment is not a bad thing. So we've got to wrap our heads around judgment as a good thing. Now we can cry out for grace. We can, as we should, we can say in wrath, remember mercy. We can do all those things, but that's not because wrath is a bad thing. So when we say things like in wrath, remember mercy. It's not because wrath is a problem. Because the judgment of God, we've got to understand, is a good thing. The other thing we can understand about God's judgment is God's judgment. When we're seeking judgment, it must be about justice, not revenge. The the reason judgment gets messed up is because we put ourselves in the equation. When we start putting ourselves in the equation, all of a sudden the righteous call for judgment becomes not so righteous anymore. If you remember the widow, she was calling out for what? For justice, not revenge. And that's even what, if you remember back in Psalm 37, that's even what God had to warn them about. The psalmist had to warn about in Psalm 37 when he says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. He's saying, wait patiently for me. But when you're waiting patiently for judgment, don't become wrathful in yourself. Refrain from anger in yourself. And he says, in fact, if you don't, you'll end up being the one who does evil. And then you're not going to want justice to come because you've just lumped yourself in the wrong side of the equation. So when you're crying out for justice, you've got to make sure when you're crying out for judgment, you've got to make sure what you want is justice, not revenge. Godly judgment says, this is wrong. Revenge says, I've been wronged. Justice is worried about God's name. Revenge is worried about your own. So we've got to make sure that our chief reason for wanting justice in this world is God's name, not our own name, that that's the one that we're seeking to defend, that that that's the one whose honor we're worried about. And if it is, you see how that will keep us from things like Psalm 37 when it says, refrain from anger and wrath because you haven't made it about yourself. You've made it about God. And we see that even judgment is colored with mercy and grace. We, we see this. We actually see this in Second Peter here. That God's judgment is an act of grace because the church may long for God to wipe these false teachers off the earth, which is not a bad thing for them to want, but God's patience, he says, has a purpose. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6, he says that Sodom and Gomorrah, what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah was making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. In other words, God's judgment is meant to teach other people about what his judgment is, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example. They teach people God, this is what God does with wickedness. So, God, even in judgment, is enacting grace. He has graciously shown other wicked people, not in Sodom and Gomorrah, what happens when you live like Sodom and Gomorrah. So, he says, even his great judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah served as an example to others, an example of grace to the lost. God, God, remember, is not being lazy and not bringing punishment. He's being gracious. When, When God talked about the times of Noah in 1 Peter chapter 3, what did he say he was being? 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So as the earth is filling up with sin, what was God doing? God was being patient even with the wicked. But God's patience is also geared toward the saved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, uh, God is going to show the church that one of the reasons he's slow is sending judgment is for their own sake. It's kind of a little twist that you get in chapter 3, verse 9 to make sure that he can work repentance in their hearts as well. So he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient, Toward you. So after all this talk about false teachers and how foolish they're going to be, which is going to fill up the rest of chapter two, in chapter three, he says, look, and God's patience to not bring judgment is also not just because he's being patient with them. He's also being patient with you. Because as you're calling out for the need for the false teachers, to, for justice to come to the false teachers, you also need the Lord to crowd to you, hey, look, I'm being patient toward you as well and need you to come to repentance. So even judgment, even the judgment of God is tempered with mercy and grace. So for us, don't be quick to run to judgment as the only answer you will accept. There there are there are, there we tend to be we tend to as always have ditches on both sides of the road, right? There are those of us in this world who are so quick to run to mercy that we never think about judgment we never pray for it we don't want to talk about it we don't know but there are others of us who are really quick to run to judgment and forget mercy both are problems and normally you will be both of those people in your life it just tends to be what we do God shows us hey you haven't been very merciful and we're like, oh, okay, I'm all mercy. And then God's like, yeah, but what about judgment? And you're like, yeah, judgment. And you're all judgment. You just sort of vacillate uh, on the narrow way uh, as you go uh, toward the Lord. Um, if the Lord is patient in judgment, you can be too. If the Lord, whose name is actually the only one who's been wronged. If the Lord can be patient, you should be. Don't, don't be so quick to only accept judgment, to only want judgment and to forget about grace. You don't want shaking the dust off your feet to be your spiritual gift, right? The example, perfect example, of this is Jonah. Jonah wanted justice. He had no problem calling for justice, but that's all Jonah wanted. Jonah was like, yes, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous, Ninevites uh, for judgment and that judgment is should be coming Uh, but Jonah just wanted God to judge the Ninevites so when Nineveh repented first Jonah didn't want to even go and tell them about repentance right because he was afraid they'd do it and then when they did repent he didn't like that either showing that Jonah did not read Psalm 37 and so you see in Jonah chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, even on Nineveh. Even on Babylon. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And, a, and, a, and Psalm 37 floated down from the heavens. and landed. Jonah was upset. That God didn't judge Nineveh. Wanting judgment was a good thing. He was so upset that God didn't judge Nineveh. That he said I would rather die. Than have a repentant Nineveh. I would rather die. Than see them repent. If you're not going to kill them. Then what? Kill me. This is how warped. He had become, in his pursuit of this quasi-justice, in his pursuit of judgment, without mercy and grace, Jonah treasured judgment over mercy and had no pity for the people of Nineveh. And God asks him if he thinks his anger at the wicked is a good thing. You You think his anger is a good thing? The implication being it's not. And so then God says in verse 11, he says, and should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah just wanted judgment to the point that he didn't even want these people to be saved and said, God, I knew you'd do this. Don't be someone who has been so hurt or is so pitiless that you want judgment instead of mercy or grace or love. It is good to call out for justice, but don't say, God, don't, please don't be merciful. Please don't be gracious. Just end them and end them now because I'm afraid if you don't end them now, they might repent. And oh man, I don't want that to happen. But, but remember, as we laugh at that, remember, God puts this example in Jonah for a reason. Not because Jonah's a one-trick pony. Not because there's never been anybody like Jonah before. Jonah's not just about, don't be afraid to go on mission trips. Jonah is about how we can wrongly seek the justice of God and the judgment of God. Good example of what God wants from his people, I think, is Micah 6, eight. I mean, that's a good example because it's in the Bible and he says that's what he wants of his people, but especially in light of what we've been reading. What does he say in Micah 6, 8? He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but that you do justice to love kindness and you walk humbly with your God. Be just, but also love Kindness. Love, steadfast love. Jonah, if you remember back, that word kindness there is the word steadfast love where Jonah says, I'm, I know God that you have steadfast love. It, it, it's, it's the same word. We just translate it different, but it's the same word. You, I know that you're steadfast God and that's what I'm afraid of. And here he's, here he's saying, look, do justice yourselves, but love, kindness and what? And be humble. Walk in humility before God. If we lose any of those three, We'll be imbalanced in what God wants from us as a people. So that's what we can learn about God's justice. But it's not just justice. I think there are a couple other lessons in this passage as well. Lessons about living before judgment. Because that's where we are right now. We can get one lesson from the false teachers and one from Noah and Lot. We're going to learn from the false teachers, which you normally should not do. Let's put that out there. Uh, I don't want you being like, I heard this guy's a false teacher. Let's go learn something. Um, one, on, on how to live in a, in, a, in a world of falsehood, how to live in a false world. It would be great if we had the same level of faith as the false teachers. Do you, do you notice the level of faith that the false teachers have? They, they really believe that judgment wasn't coming. So much to the point that it shaped how they lived. They were so confident that God wasn't going to judge that they twisted his word, that they were driven by sensuality, that they took advantage of his people. And that's because they thought God's not going to keep his promises. God's not going to do that. And so they, they, they so believed that, that they lived any way that they wanted to. What if you really believe that God would keep his promises? Then it would shape how you live as well it reminds me of Jesus' word when he says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and pharisees look your faith must exceed that of the false teachers the false teachers who have faith in a, in a lie in the wrong thing and yet live as if that wrong thing was so true how can we not have more faith in the truth how can we not so trust God that he will keep his promises, that he will rescue us, that he will take care of us, that judgment is coming? How can we not believe that at least as much as the false teachers believe the lie? Because we'll say we believe those things, but it doesn't change how we live. We don't live as if people are going to say, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we above all men are to be most pitied because we've sure been living like there is one. But for the most part, people couldn't say that about us. Because we hedge our bets. The false teachers didn't hedge their bets. They were all in, in God ain't going to do nothing. And as believers, we need to be the opposite of that. Which is to have enough faith that says, look, I am living my life as if I believe my eternity rests. Not in God not keeping his word, but then that, that he does. And if you looked at my life, people would say, man... He really, she really believes in all that stuff. Because if, if, if it's not true, he's in trouble. She's in trouble. Because they've wasted everything. If the false teachers are wrong, they're in trouble. Because they believed it with everything they got. I want the same to be able to be said of us. That we have at least as much faith as the false teachers had that we believe the truth at least as much as they believe the lie. So how has your certainty changed your life? How, How has being certain in God's word changed how you live? If they can be so confidently wrong, how can we be so timidly right? The second lesson we can learn from Noah and Lot Because even though we are confident of our victory, how do we live in this broken world? Christians should still be plagued by the sin of this world. Christians should not grow complacent with a fallen world. And what does that mean? How do we not grow complacent? One, we should be a herald of righteousness. Be a herald of righteousness of righteousness second peter chapter 2 verse 5 says that noah was a herald of righteousness in the midst of this fallen world noah was preaching right that word herald is the same word that we get the word preacher the same word that noah was preaching right it's not saying that noah was a pastor you know during that time leading a little church over there pre-flood church what it's saying is Noah was proclaiming these things, proclaiming the righteousness of God, either through his life or through actual speaking. Probably the latter, actually probably both. That he was preaching righteousness in a world where no one listened. In a world where no one listened and no one wanted to listen. And yet he preached And preached he was a herald of righteousness in that world. It would have been easy for Noah to be discouraged, to doubt God's judgment. He's heralding these things. And more and more people, I mean, it's just spreading. You think think the coronavirus is bad? It's spreading. This unrighteousness is spreading so that it comes and, and, and gets even to their thoughts of everyone was always wicked continually all the time. Who knows how long Noah preached righteousness before God even told him about the flood? Before God even told him about judgment is coming and this is how. Who knows how many years he stood and and proclaimed righteousness to a people that wouldn't listen and he's sitting there wondering, is God ever going to do anything about this world? But we do know that until the flood came, his life, Peter says, was a trial was a test thing because of the wicked around him. Because he says, look, you can learn from the life of Noah that God rescues his people from trials. So until Noah was rescued, that world around him was a trial to him, and yet he kept preaching righteousness. As Christians, there's never a moment where our world is so far gone that we can quit preaching, quit calling the world to righteousness, where we just go, "Ah, that's it. The world's not going to listen anymore. So we'll just quit. We'll just quit calling the world to believe. We'll quit calling the world to righteousness. In your fallen world, in your Sodom, how are you preaching righteousness? Are you calling Sodom back to God or have you settled into a life of a Sodomite world? I just live in Sodom. I'll just kind of let it happen. Are you standing up and being a herald of righteousness to that? We've been so, we have become as Christians, so driven by fear, so driven by pragmatics and polling data and all the stuff that we don't really have a heraldic voice anymore. We never even think of proclaiming righteousness. We just want them to keep allowing us to keep our own righteousness to ourselves. We're more worried about that. We're not worried about standing up and saying this is wicked and evil sinfulness. We're like, can we still believe this if we keep it here in our little church? We still allow us to do that? Okay? If we're really quiet about it, can we just preach it to ourselves? Is that okay? We we've, there's we've become no, we're not heralds. We're not proclaiming righteousness anymore. We never even think of proclaiming it. We say meaningless things like "just love the world back to the Lord," "just love them to the Lord." Don't 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 proclaim righteousness. Just kind of let them see it waft out of you. We don't we don't need as Christians. We don't need to be citizens in Sodom, sort of twiddling our thumbs. What we need is heralds of righteousness. And as Christians so far, we we are sometimes very far from this. We are so timid. So don't be timid. Be a herald. Be someone who says crazy things. Like who at work just goes, hey, guys, who wants to do a Bible study at lunch? Who wants to read our Bibles at lunch? Be someone who heralds the right thing. Be someone who tells their friend, hey, quit complaining about your godly wife. That's not a good thing to do. Quit doing it. Be someone who says to the whole baseball team, look, we shouldn't be playing on Sundays. And not just me, any of you. None of you. Be someone who is the voice for, who is a herald. Is a herald who's calling for these things. Who's saying, I will stand up for what is right. I will proclaim it. I don't care if the rest of the world doesn't care one bit. I ain't doing it for the rest of the world. I'm proclaiming the righteousness of my God. And we see a similar reaction from Lot. Lot, though far from perfect, was a righteous man. Let that be an encouragement to you the next time you are worried about uh, your sometimes less successful walk in your Godward living. And Lot, it says, was greatly distressed by the sensuality he saw around him. Not only should you be a herald, also don't get comfortable with a false world. Lot was not comfortable. Look at what it says. And if he rescued Lot, this is 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. If he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Peter's readers are right to be distressed by the sensuality of these false teachers. That's right. They shouldn't be comfortable with it. These false teachers are sodomites. Driven by the same things that drove Sodom and Gomorrah. Our definition of Sodomite is far too narrow. Sodomite is anyone driven by sensuality and greed and despising authority. That person is living like a Sodomite. They should be distressed, but they shouldn't be defeated. One problem we've run into as Christians is we have become desensitized to sin. It says that Lot was tormented day and night over the lawless things of his nation. The lawless things that he saw and even the things that he heard. We live in a country that praises all forms of sin. All sorts of sexual deviancy. Treats things like divorces if they're nothing. A nation that that kills its children and it does all the things. A nation that kills its children and then throws parades for the murderers. Throws parades for the sinners, for the deviancy. That's the nation we live in, and that should torment us. It should torment us. And what does that look like? What does it look like to be tormented by that? Well, here's just a couple of verses that might help us. Psalm 119, 136 He says, "My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law." When is the last time? You were moved by the fact that all of God's creation is living in rebellion to him. When's the last time that moved you? I mean, we'll, we'll read scripture and we'll cry because of what it says about our life. But when's the last time that you saw the sin of the world and were so moved because of what that says about God? Because people do not keep his law. When did you weep? Not for yourself, but for this fallen world. That has affected you or, uh, for the sake of God's name. When's the last time you were so moved by the love for God's name that you wept? Or how about Psalm 119, 158? I look at the faithless with disgust. Because they do not keep your commandments. When is the last time sin disgusted you? We have gotten so used to sin that it doesn't disgust us anymore. It doesn't sicken us at what the world is doing. We're like the kid whose parents have got him to eat vegetables so long that they actually think they taste all right. That's what we've become in this world. We have so, they have shoved this stuff down our throats that we swallow the soylent green as if it is nothing. But we cannot be unmoved by sin. It must disgust us. Perhaps the most striking example that I could think of was Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel 9. Remember, this is what we looked at. The glory of the Lord leaps from the temple. It's this lion that's going out to exact judgment on the world. And do you remember how God marked out those for judgment in that story? Who was going to be judged and who wasn't? Well, you're reading it right now, so don't say you did. Uh, But what does it say? And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. This is like a secondary version of the Passover. But what marks out these people is not blood on the thresholds of their house, but sighs and groanings coming out of their mouth because of the sin they see. And to the others, he said in hearing pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And judgment fell on the nation and it was only those who were groaning over the abominations around them that were spared. And do you remember where all that started in Ezekiel 9? Do you remember where that began? He says, and let it begin in my sanctuary. Let the first people that you look and see, are they groaning? Be the people who are sitting in worship of me but who are not groaning about the sin going on in the world around them, who are not sighing, who are not disgusted by the fall, who are not weeping for my name. Are you distressed by this? if, If this were to happen today, if God were to come And mark you out, not because of Christ in your life, but because of your groaning or sighing over the abominations of this world, would you get a mark? We always talk about the mark of the beast, whatever. We won't even get into that. But would you have received this mark? The implication from scripture is that if you're a believer, yes, that should be true of you that true believers, true faith in God will result in us groaning over the sin that we see in the world. We all talk about if the Passover came, swiping that blood across our threshold. But if, if the Spirit of the Lord leapt from the temple today, would you have been marked as someone who is sighing and groaning over this lost world? Don't become complacent with the world around you. The promise that God rescues the godly from trials is assuming that you're uncomfortable with the trial in the first place. Some of us would be Noah, but Noah being cool with everything that was going on. We'd be Lot. We think we're Lot, but we're Lot just hanging out in Sodom. We live in a world dealing with false teachers, with trials on every side. Let's praise God who rescues us from trials, but let's also praise a God that punishes the unrighteous, that keeps them under punishment until the day of judgment. And if we don't understand how we're supposed to praise that, then ask God to help us understand. Let's pray.